Hi, I'm Adam Burton, the pastor at Central Baptist Church. Thank you for checking out this sermon. I pray that it encourages you and helps you to grow closer to Jesus. While as grateful as I am for you, please don't allow this message to keep you from connecting with a local church. If you're in our area, we would love for you to check us out at Central Baptist Church. God bless. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of of this, this Gospel. You know, what's easy for you is hard for someone else. But what's hard for you is easy for someone else. So anyone here good at math? Anybody good with, with numbers and adding, multiplying, dividing, subtracting? Yes, good to see our young people are good in math. You know, I, I know some people that, that can, can multiply and, and divide complex numbers in their mind. They can calculate percentages and exponents and, and all of that in, in, in their head. And, and, and here I am, I, you're taking my, my pencil out and I'm writing everything down, making sure that I, I carry all of the right zeros and over there and mark this because um, make sure that I follow all of the steps so that I end up with, with the right answer. You might ask, well, how, how, how do you do that in your, in your head? And you're like, well, I, I don't know. I just always done it that way. You know, for years I, uh, I gave guitar lessons and, uh, I taught kids from the youngest was five years old. The oldest was 85 years old. And, uh, the five-year-old and the 85-year-old, neither one of them um, lasted all of that, that, that long in, in taking lessons. But, but I always enjoyed uh, having beginners and, and new students because uh, they were uh, so excited to come to learn to play this new instrument. And to, and, uh, but they were also kind of idealistic right? because almost every time, whether he was a kid or an adult, they would come in and say that, I want to play the, the, the Taylor Swift song that I heard on the radio or, um, you know, or the go back and play some Eagles and, and, and depending on what era they were born in. And I say, sure, you know what? Hey, if we put the work into it and you practice, then you can play pretty much whatever you want. You know, and so, you know, after we kind of learned the, the, the G, C, and the D chords and just a little bit of, uh, of rhythm, man, now they feel like they are, you know, they're, they're musicians and they can, they can just uh, play solo now. And then, you know, <laughs> happened many times, they would, they would bring in a, a chord sheet or a song sheet to me and say, hey, I'm ready to play this song. Can, can, we, can, can, can we play it? And they said, I, I started and it just isn't, isn't sounding right. And I mean, I try to keep up on different music styles, but um, I'm not up on everything. And most of the time, though, I, I didn't know the song. But I would take a look at the court sheet and I would just pick my guitar up and I would just start start playing it. And I was like, does this, does this sound right? And, and they were kind of amazed. And they were like, you said you didn't know this song, right? And I was like, no, I, I don't. And they're like, well, how can you play a song that you've never heard before? I'm like, well, I don't know the song, but I do know music and I know how to play the guitar. Look, I, I, 
most of them, I had been playing the guitar longer than they had been alive. And see, all they saw was somebody playing an instrument, playing a song that, you know, it sounds like something that they would hear on the, the radio. What they don't see is the years of practice where that I became proficient enough, although not perfectly at all, but I could play most basic songs. And usually the songs you hear on the radio, although they sound neat and stuff, they're, they're not all that complicated to play. And sadly, a lot of students wouldn't make it past, uh, you know, a few more lessons after that. Why is it? Well, it's because they wanted to be able to to play and to do what I did without taking the hours of practicing and learning an instrument and all that goes along with it. See, there's a difference between someone who can play a, a, a song on the guitar and, and a musician. There's a, a difference between someone who, who takes a, a painting class and, and an artist. There's a difference between somebody who can uh, write a, a, a blog or a Facebook post and an author. And there's a difference between someone who fishes and a fisherman. And ultimately, there is a difference between a fisherman and the Son of God. So if you would, read along with me this morning. Gospel of John, chapter 21, starting in verse 1, going through verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter was with them. And he said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, well, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? <laughs> they answered him, no. And he said to them, well, then cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad or went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, well, come and have breakfast. Now, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. So with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from 
the dead. Would you pray with me? Oh, definitely, Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how that it is the living, the breathing word of God. So, God, we just pray that you, your word would speak to us this day. God, that I would be faithful, God, to the text and to the Holy Spirit. We pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Savior and Lord. God, that you would be working in them even as I speak to see the, the ugliness of their sin. God, in the goodness and the beauty of Jesus as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus, on that shore that, that morning, told the disciples, he said, come and eat. Now, obviously, Jesus was speaking literally at that moment, for they were he was fixing fish. But as with Jesus, just a simple word, there is far more to it. So what does it mean for us 2,000 years later, as Jesus' children, just as those apostles were that morning, what does it mean for us to come and to eat with Jesus? In this passage this morning, we're going to see that we are to trust Jesus, and he will provide. Trust Jesus, and he will provide. Jesus said, the risen Jesus had finally had appeared to all of the disciples, and, and so they had, he leaves them in Jerusalem, and, and so they, they scatter. It says they, they go back to their home in, in Galilee. Now, I mean, put yourself in, in, in the disciples' shoes. I mean, it's been a pretty uh, rough few weeks. They, they've seen quite a, a lot. Right, they celebrated Jesus as the, the king as he rode into Jerusalem on that, that donkey. Then he was killed as a criminal for crimes that he did not commit. The disciples, they, they hid in fear for their own lives as wondering if they were next. They would bear the same fate as their leader. Then they hear that the tomb was empty wondering who might have stolen his body. And then wondering, would we be blamed for the stealing of his body? And then the resurrected Jesus appears to them at different times, first to John and to Peter, then the rest of the disciples except Thomas. But then a week later, he finally satisfies the doubts of Thomas by, by showing his nail-pierced hands in his Speared aside. And after this, John explains the purpose of his gospel, saying that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, this last chapter, John chapter 21, is, is an epilogue. My epilogue. Well, I looked up in the Merriam-Webster dictionary at an epilogue, and it's this. It's the final scene of a play that comments on or summarizes 
the main action. Now, I know nobody ever in school would just turn to the end of the book in order to avoid having to read the entire book to find out what the book was about. And nobody would ever be be guilty of that. But a, a good book with a good author would, at the end of it, typically in what is called an epilogue, would would kind of review what had taken place in the previous chapters, although skipping a lot of, uh, of the important details, in order to summarize what the book was about. And that's what John chapter 21 is. And in fact, there's some scholars believe that, that John didn't write this last chapter. They would say that because, you know, naturally... In John 20, verses 30 and 31, those two verses seem like a natural conclusion to a book. But I disagree with those scholars because, in fact, there's no evidence showing that chapter 21 here was, was omitted and added later. The earliest manuscripts that we have of the Bible always included this chapter. And, and to be honest, it... it it is uses the same language that that John used throughout his gospel, and not only does it not contradict what was written, but in fact, I think it, it properly does uh, summarize it. I tend to agree with author Gary Burge when he says that we should then view chapter twenty one as an epilogue, which picks up previous themes and develops them, bringing these subjects to a firm conclusion. I believe in this passage, this conclusion that we are to firm is that we are to trust Jesus and he will provide. Trust Jesus and he will provide. And I think we're going to see this in in, in two ways. One, we are to trust Jesus when he is silent. We're to trust Jesus when he is silent. The disciples, they, they, didn't, they didn't know what was next, right? Jesus didn't give them proper career advice when they met with him to counsel, and he laid out all of the, the, the years of their life that they should do this at this age. You need to have this much money saved up by here in order to meet your retirement by the time that you get to, to, you know, to 65 years old. He, he, he didn't give them a, a specific life plan. That he just kind of left them rather abruptly, escaping through a closed door. And so what do they do? Well, they go back to what was familiar to them. They went back to to Galilee, for Galilee was home to most of the apostles. It's where they were born. It's where they grew up. It's where they worked before they met Jesus. It's where Jesus met them when he called them to follow him. And it's also where they did most of their ministry. It's what they knew. The last words that Jesus left them with when he was sending them. He said, I am sending you out. But he didn't tell them to whom or to where. I believe this omission was on purpose. Because Jesus wanted them to wait. He wanted them to wait. Now, if you're like me, waiting is hard, especially when things are uncertain. 
you don't know how you're going to make it to tomorrow, whether it's you lose a, a job or, or uh, you know, you, you, you just the, the pressure of life is, is getting to you. But oftentimes, and we see this throughout Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, is this concept of, of waiting. One person I think that was particularly challenging for was Simon Peter. <laughs> we see throughout his life how active he was, right? He was the, the first one to jump out of the boat to walk on uh, water, right? He was very uh, zealous, passionate for Jesus, although we also saw that his passion was misplaced and we saw his cowardice when the rooster crowed and he denied Christ. I can imagine all of the disciples in that room with the door locked, wondering who might be knocking on it. Is it the, the Roman authorities or the, the, the Jewish leaders coming to take them, to kill them for their role in the insurrection that supposedly took place? Imagine Peter being like, what are we supposed to do? We can't just sit here all day. We've got to be doing something. And so what does he do? He says, look, I'm going fishing. Now, I don't know if Peter wanted to be off alone by himself or not, but, but several of the other disciples said, hey, we're going to go fishing with you. Now, for these men, fishing was more than just a hobby for them. No, it was, it was their vocation before meeting Jesus. It was their, their livelihood. They they knew how to fish. They were taught how to fish. They invested their lives, hours and hours and years in fishing. The best time to, to fish was at night. In fact, it was in, actually late into the night, in the early hours of the morning, right before sunrise was the best time for them to go into fish. And, and so they would take these boats, something that looked like this, and they would would take these boats out into the Sea of Galilee. Now, this picture here is uh, um, an actual boat from the time of Jesus. It was discovered in 1986 by two Israeli brothers. They themselves were fishermen, and uh, they found it in the area of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, I've seen this boat in in person on our pilgrimage years ago to, uh, to Israel. Now, I don't know if this is how you pictured uh, a a first century boat or not, but in fact, this boat would uh, be about 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and about four and a half feet deep. And these planks—they're all—they're joined together by by pegged mortise and 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 tenon joints and and nails. The bottom would have a flat bottom, and and in this boat—hard to believe, but there would be room for four staggered rowers and there would be a mast there for sailing as well. Now, in the case of Peter and the disciples, there, there likely was, was two boats that were working together in, in, in pairs and how they, because in the first century, they didn't fish with rods and reels like we might think of fishing. Now they know they used compound nets. So what they would do is they would, would, would see where a, a school of fish might be, and they would, they would cast these, these nets around this school of fish. And, and so first what they would, would do is they would encircle the fish, 
And they would set up nets vertically right, with corked floaters on one edge to float. And then on the other edge of the neck or of the net would be would be weights, uh, um, different materials. Sometimes it would be a stone or a metal sinker. And so what they would do is they would throw this net out and then the one side would sink down to the bottom. The other would float at the top. And what they would do is they would encircle the fish to trap them in this, in this net. And then once you get the, the school of fish in this net, and you can see why it might take two boats to try to outsmart the fish because they were in school. They would then, they would then throw or they would cast nets about 10 foot across the top. They would have sinkers as well on the ends. And so what that would do is would, would close up the fish. And then the net would be tightened up and either pulled onto the boat or if it was shallow enough, which was probably the case here in this passage, is, is you would have a swimmer that would go out into the water and would go into bring the fish on board. And a lot of times it wasn't uncommon for fish to be caught up into the, into the net wall as they were trying to escape, I guess making it a little easier for some of the fishermen. Where the disciples were fishing was about 100 yards off from the shore, likely shallow water. And just kind of, you know, kind of reading this passage, it was probably Peter was the swimmer. He was the one that was out in the water to work the, the nets. So this is what they're doing. But the problem that the disciples had this night is they've got all the preparation. They have the men, they have the boats, they have the nets, the sinkers, everything. But they don't have any fish. So even in the midst of doing, they're still not where they want to be. Now, we can see from this first scene in this epilogue of of John's gospel is that the disciples were waiting. I don't know how patiently or not they were, but they were waiting nonetheless for the next instructions to come from Jesus. And to be honest, they probably did sit around and mope for a while, probably a little scared Wondering, I bet they even conjectured about what was going to happen in the future. Maybe they even argued or had some blow-up fights. But eventually what they did, though, is, is they went back to what they knew, what they were taught. They, they went to what was steady. They, they stayed the course. So they didn't wait idly loathing themselves in self-pity. But nor did they go out and try to create something on their own. Now, I have a feeling in a room this size and probably those watching online, there's some of us that may feel dissatisfied with life. Maybe your career is not going the way that you wanted to or your marriage isn't everything that you thought it was going to be, or your kids just aren't turning out like like you wanted. 
The economy isn't good. The world is uncertain. You're thinking to yourself, look, I, I, I cannot keep living this way. I've got to change something. And honestly, I don't know if it matters what. I've just got to do something different. And so what do you do? You start looking for uh, another career. Or maybe you start dreaming of another family, you know, one that's better than the family that you got. Or maybe in order to escape the drudgery of life, you uh, abuse alcohol or drugs or even prescription drugs where we go against the doctor and it's like we know better than the doctor. And not only is it taking away physical pain, but now we're numbing our senses. I'm here to tell you, don't do it. Don't have those thoughts. Don't take those actions. Because we are to trust Jesus when he is silent. That the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to be content in every situation, in the good times, but also in the challenging times as well. I'm sure you've heard, right, that the grass is greener on the other side, and I'm here to tell you that most of the time is a lie. For somebody you think that has an easy life, guess what? It's hard in ways that you can't see. And I know many instances where somebody thinks that you know that you've got a hard life and somebody else thinks that yours is easy and would get anything to have what you've got. See, if you're not content in your current life, I don't care how much money you have, what possessions that you have, guess what? You're probably not going to be content living another life either. No, it takes faith. It takes faith for us to, to be content when life isn't going the way that we want. But you can also know what King David lamented, that weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So is Jesus, is Jesus your joy? So when Jesus is silent. Stay the course, for he won't stay silent forever. But when he speaks, boom, not only should you listen, but you need to move. Secondly, we are to trust Jesus when he tells you what to do. Now, if you've ever fished with a professional fishing guide, you know that there's a method right, for how they, they fish. Like they know the, the best times to go out and, and fish. They know the best areas to take the, the boat out to, to fish. You've got, you know, those expensive fish finders that can look down, which I'm pretty sure Peter and John didn't have back then to see those schools of fish. They know all the best bait and the proper techniques to fish. Well, Although technology has changed over the years, the same was true in the first century. 
You don't want to do what I I did when I was a a sixth grader at my papa's catfish pond. You know, I was oldest, the biggest, and getting into that age of teenager, you know, I'm becoming a man. I get my rod and reel, and, you know, I can obviously do it better than my brother and sister. And I I take it back, and and I fling it as hard as I could. But it, that line takes off with that hook and the bait on it. Only problem is, is that it went all the way over to the clear other side of the pond where all of the nasty weeds and stuff was. So I kind of pull on it and tug a little bit, and it doesn't really come loose much on a reel, and it's like, and I feel like I've got something. And I I start reeling harder and yelling at Papa, I got it, and and it comes in, and all it is is a big old clump of grass and weeds. (laughs) You know, the apostles were taught the proper method to fish. And they improved on it. They learned the trade. And over the years of, of doing it, and so they had this process of dropping the nets, and, and then they would systematically move around the lake. And then they hear somebody on the shore call out to him and hey, you guys caught anything yet? <laughs> now, the disciples were a little more honest than I think fishermen would be today. They, no matter what kind of fish you catch, like, yeah, I caught, you know, a largemouth bass that was, it was this big, you know, I mean, no, they admit, look, I, I didn't catch anything. Now, at this point, they didn't know who this person was. And he tells him, he says, why don't you go cast the net on the other side of the boat? Now, this wasn't the method that they were going to, 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 to do. Right? They did what they had always done. Sometimes you come to areas and you catch fish. If you don't, then you move on to the, to the other. And sometimes you just the fish just don't. Don't bite, so to speak. But they listen. And they do. They cast the net on the other side. And when they do so, they catch more fish than they can handle. That person was Jesus. When he spoke, they listened. And he provided for them. So when Jesus speaks to us, we better listen. Now, how is it that we are to to know what to do when he is speaking to us? We don't have the person of Christ here in in front of us. We can't have this conversation and and debate with Jesus. And we don't have the physical person of Christ until he returns a second time. But he doesn't leave us alone either. One, we must be in the Word. You know, when things aren't going the way you want or when you feel like you're in a holding pattern, the best thing that you can do is dust off that Bible and and start reading. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of times we come and we're looking for specific things. We want answers, don't we? But I can't tell you how many times where I just, no agenda at all, I just open the Bible and I start reading. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I hear God speaking to me. 
And a lot of times it's ways that I hadn't even thought. Sometimes it's, look, you need to just stay the course. I know it's hard. I know the pain is real, but just, just keep on going. Sometimes it's like Paul and Silas in prison. I, don't, I haven't been in prison, but I can imagine it's a bad place. And what do they do? They start singing hymns. We're suffering. We can sing. And other times it's look at it and, and, I, and I feel like, well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid like, like Peter was. Jesus was walking on the water and, and at first found the boldness to step out. At least I stepped out of the boat, but then you take your eyes off of Jesus and you start to sink. Good news. So no matter how far you're sinking, if you look up to him, he'll pull you in. He will save you. And so secondly, tied in with the first one. All right, these two don't operate independent. We need to be in the spirit. All right, we must commune with God. We must be, have a devoted prayer life. When we do so, the, we will read scripture with fresh eyes and we will be able to discern the word of the Lord. And then lastly, we are to be in community. And what I found is that when most people are in a discontent state of life. They're just in a blah period. Things aren't moving the way they wish they would. And a couple of things that, that I tend to see is one is they will kind of quit reading the Bible. Daily practice. They find that what's the point of praying to God if he's not going to answer me? And then regardless whether you're a Christian or not, one of the things that most happen with people that are in this state is they will isolate themselves from everyone else. Because let's face it, when you're miserable, the last thing you want to do is be around other people. Right? Because either you're going to see everybody else is better than you are, and I don't want that. I don't want to hear about how good things are happening to them when I'm down here in my misery. Or you hear about other people's misery and then you're just trying to compete with them to see who's the most miserable of the miserable. So we end up putting ourselves alone. And when we do that, we are are weak. We are weak because we've abandoned the word of God. We've abandoned our communion with the Lord and we've abandoned the people that God has placed in our lives to help us, to to encourage us when we need to be encouraged, but honestly, to give us a kick in the pants when it says, you need to get out of this. So we must be in the word, be in the spirit and be in community. And we see the conclusion of this passage where, where John 
It's the first one. As he was at the tomb, the, the tomb was empty. He's the first one to recognize Jesus. He cries out, it's the Lord, but it's the same with before. Peter is the first one to act. So he had taken off his tunic, his outer garment in order to work, and he puts it back on as he jumps in the water and and swims over to, to Jesus. Look, there is, it's always the right time to run to Jesus. Whether you're at your lowest or you're at your highest or you're honestly just somewhere in between. Always run to Jesus. And he'll be there. He'll be there waiting for you, but not just waiting for you. For we see that Jesus is cooking fish on a charcoal grill there. Now, who is he with at this moment? Peter's the only one that's made it to shore. But do you know what the significance of a charcoal fire is? It's just a few weeks prior. When Jesus is standing in trial at Caiaphas' house, Peter gets cold, kind of fearful, doesn't really want to be around Jesus, for they might arrest him also. So he's out in the courtyard. John tells us that Jesus can see him out there. And Peter has abandoned the Lord. And went over with the soldiers, with the guards, standing around a barrel full of charcoal, warming himself up. He denied Jesus. When they said, hey, aren't you that Galilean you know, with, with Jesus? I was like, no, no, I don't know that man. I must be getting me confused with somebody else. And here he is, sitting there on the beach, around a charcoal fire that Jesus prepared, filleting up some fish for them to have breakfast. Jesus, he turns our failures into his glory. He turns our failures into his glory. Jesus is saying, not using words in this moment, that I know you abandoned me. I forgive you. But look, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to give you food to eat. And we're going to see next week even the greater redemption of Simon Peter. But where you're at this moment, I don't know. Some of you may be riding high, but I I just know a lot of people that are struggling in life. Just not content with where they are. Wishing things were better. Wishing that the world was Better there was peace that we'd be rid of the coronavirus. Jobs are not where we want them to be. Or a lot of messed up families out there. 
So instead of just thinking, I am suffering right now, I got to get out of this as quick as I can, might be wondering, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? How are you speaking to me? And this is the thing. He said that trust God when he is silent. He is, he's always at work. He's always at work. Maybe he has you in that place for a purpose. Maybe it's to help others in that situation. Or maybe it is to to teach you how to persevere in life. For most people, when life gets hard, they quit. They run. They move on to something else. And you all know them. They can't keep a job more than a few months or years. They've been married a number of times. And know what? They always have the new V car, but yet they're always up to their eyeballs in debt. It's a sign of somebody who is not content with life. They're always chasing after something else. The only thing that we should chase after is Jesus. And when we do so, he will give us everything we need. Not not just everything we need. But how did he provide for the disciples? He gave them more than they ever expected. 153 fish. It might as well have been a million fish. But he gave them. Because of his love for them. Thank you for listening to this message. To listen to other messages and to learn more about Central Baptist Church, visit our website at cbcmaysville.com.